Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. We're back. Another episode of Book Club. How's it going, everybody? Good, thanks. We've got a guest today. A guest. Someone, hey. has, someone has actually chosen <laughs> to come into the office and hang out with us and talk about a book with us. We've got Mark Buck and Jones on the show. How's it going, Mark? Fine. Thanks, Johnny. Thanks, Mike. Thank yeah. you so much for coming down here today. An absolute pleasure. So why don't you tell us a little bit about you as our guest in the room today? Okay, let me let me, let me me start at the beginning. Uh Banking in the 1970s, um, right, and then Xerox in 79. Um, right. first spin course ever held down in Newport, Pragan. Uh, wow, Pragan. that was my. Uh, um, in fact, it's the foundation of my uh, selling. I think that original spin course. Um, Xerox and Olivetti partners in the early 80s around Manchester, and then uh, formed a disaster recovery company in the mid 80s. Um, through for three, four, five years. Right. Um, and then moved to Oracle in 1990. Wow. Um, running their education business, North England and Scotland. Did that for um, seven, eight years. Late 90s, went into license sales and um, ran about 30, 40 accounts as you do when you first move into that area um, and quickly had some big wins against uh, SAP and uh, started looking after some accounts globally. And from that, in the sort of uh, four or five, again, again years into, into that role, uh, I was asked to look after something called Attack SAP. Right. Which was um, how, to, how Oracle competed against SAP in the marketplace. And that was because, I don't know if you remember, um, uh, in those years, Oracle could sell everything on the price list. As a salesperson, you could sell everything. And right. We, the strategy was changed, so you could uh, only sell database uh, applications or middleware. Right. And um, uh, we needed somebody who could help the other salespeople, uh, encourage them to win against SAP. And so that's what I'd like to talk so about a little bit later. It's a sales coaching gig, really. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think one thing that struck me about this book is that uh, although it was published in 2014, I believe, um, much of the strategies, tactics, the techniques in this book are things I think I've adopted right. um, since the beginning of my career in the late 70s. Could you just move your mic a little bit closer of to course. yourself? Yeah. How's that? We're going to work on, Mar- so just bit, We're gonna work on Mark's mic technique, aren't we? Oh, okay. Well, I see I say that I'm the least technically <laughs> deaf person in the room, so I can't believe, I can't believe it's me so, advising you. Does that work? Does that work, Lauren? And I think... I think, Mark, as we've been talking over the over the uh, over the months, we've been shooting book club and some of the comments and conversation we've had on LinkedIn. I think, by your own admission, you're a bit of a self-confessed sales geek, really, are you? Well, it's, I love sales. Um, I think everybody is a salesperson. Whatever job they do, they're a salesperson. Mm. Um, but professional selling is an art, um, the gentle art of persuasion. And um, I, my history in sales is. I used to work in a shop. My mother had a pharmacy. I right. used to sit there watching her um, consult, do consultative selling in the early 70s and really seeing what a difference that somebody can make who's got expertise, who can actually coach and coax things out of people. Really, really interesting. So that's where my passion for sales came. She was a visualiser, wasn't she? A visualiser, absolutely. Visualiser and value driver. So everything, as I read through this, just resonates so much. As I said, they've codified something that I think has been really around for ever in sales but they've done a fantastic job this i think you enthused about this book last week it's unlike me as well because i'm normally quite cynical about the book yeah we've been a bit more energized by this one haven't we i'd like to yeah well i I just think there's so many things in this book that people can take um i like your word codify actually i think that's a very apt absolutely apt word for this Mm, so what we're covering today so we're on chapters seven eight and nine. We're, we're, we're in the final furlong before our author, Timothy T. Sullivan, comes on the show next week. Absolutely. So we're well into that now. Um, chapter seven, establishing a dynamic sales process. What do you make of it, Pricey? <clears throat> uh, well, I, let, let's, just, let's explain what it is. So, I mean, this chapter for me is to see where your prospect is at in their buying process and then decide which of the clubs from your golf stick, from your golf bag you're going to use. Are you going to be a micro-marketeer, a visualiser or a value driver? And then actually something that I think it then does well is it brings the concept of 
different buyers are at different places on that spectrum or need a different approach and then there are different buyers involved in the sale I thought this was one of the best chapters in the book actually did you? yeah yeah I did I thought it was one of the best chapters in the book now, enough, Mark, I, I don't think I engage with it quite as much right um it, it, it starts off, one of our clients, Microsoft, was able to confirm and quantify the value of its sales process implementation. And I, I like that and all that. You know, my, my concern is it's my Microsoft's solution sales process results. What I was frustrated with, I think, with this chapter and perhaps some of the other subsequent chapters leading to the end of the book was it talks so much about enterprise selling. And, and I get that because the book is designed for an enterprise salesperson. Well, funnily enough, the enterprise salesperson sat opposite me. He's got a lot of notes. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got a lot of notes because uh, I think one thing that's missing from this book, if it's, it's alluded to in parts, but one thing that's missing is the role of the partner community. Um, right. And I think um, talks a lot about becoming a trusted partner to your client. Well, I actually think it's very difficult for a quarterly, even a fiscally driven salesperson to become a true trusted partner. And I think the now role... That, you raise an interesting point there. So I don't know if you listened to one of our previous book clubs. Uh, there it is, Go Give a Sell More. Yeah. I was saying to Johnny, I said, listen, right, if, if I interviewed somebody and they said their strategy is to be a go-giver and it yeah. was a quarter-driven sales environment, they just laughed. Yeah, So absolutely. as a man that's worked for Oracle, which I'm sure is a very nice place yeah. and I'm sure it's very full of very nice people, Yeah. how um, realistic is that as a sales process in the enterprise space, do you think? Well, as far as I'm concerned, the bit that's missing that I just mentioned there is really about uh, using the partner community. Um, one thing that the way SAP, for example, the way they dominated the marketplace 10, 20 years ago was by realising they can't just walk into some of the largest accounts in Europe and just totally take over. Uh, they need to find out who of those executives that are making the decisions, who do they see as their trusted partner and align themselves to those people. I think that is missing from this book. So can I just be clear about something here for the viewers who maybe haven't worked in that sector? So I think what I'm Mark listening. is referring to, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the fact that we've got an Oracle sales team and then we've got a partner sales team who sell Oracle products as a third party. Is that what you mean? Uh, no, forgive me. What I mean is if you look at the big four. Yes. Uh, what I mean is um, if you're looking at an organisation, let's say Cadbury's, for example, yes. uh, their board of directors aren't going to rely on a fiscally driven salesperson to drive the strategy of that business. No. They're going to turn to the mean. big four and they're going to be getting direction and guidance from, from those organisations. Yeah, And I think really what's different about the way SAP and Oracle sell is that they align themselves to those organisations and they get the value um, by getting a seat at the top table through the relationships they build with those. Okay, I understand what, what you mean Through now. their alliances. Through their alliances, for. absolutely. And one thing, if I can just sort of draw an analogy, I mentioned about pharmacy before, but mm. um, I used to say the difference between Oracle and SAP, for example, is that uh, Oracle was looking for people to, uh, if you were selling pharmaceuticals, they're looking for people that are ill in the street mm. and trying to find prospects that way, where SAP align themselves to the big four, and they, if you're an organisation that's ill or sick or trying to improve, you go to a business doctor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So okay. that was the fundamental difference in why... They're using the management consulting They're channel. using, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, so that, that my immediate observation from this is that um, if you're trying to become a trusted partner in a short period of time, there's a better way of doing it. Or there isn't a shortcut, per se. Well, Eads, Eads would say... If you become a, a trusted partner in a short period of time, it, you can't. He would say that you've got to start as a micro-marketeer to get yourself to the trusted partner status for when you can then uh, move into the visualiser part of the process. Yep. Now, I, I like this, actually. Page 132. And on page 132, he talks, or they talk, about um, the depth of a relationship you have with a prospect. Mm -hmm. You've not taken any notes on this, Johnny. That's amazed me. Why? I thought you'd really like that. I thought that's... What, that ladder? The ladder of trusted partner, strategic contributor, solutions consultant, preferred supplier, approved vendor. And then it's sort of a I, graph. I just felt like I'd seen it before. Maybe it was late at night when I read it and then <laughs> I was having a bit of deja See, vu. See, Mark hasn't taken any notes on it either. I, 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 I think what is, what's interesting here in the... I, I'm going to go back a page before we go to that. Okay. Because he, he's, he's talking about process and sales process, mm. right? He says, in short, the more mature the sales process definition, the higher the general level 
of customer relationship. So what he's saying is if you've got a more mature, defined sales process, mm. the more likely you are to be working and the more higher the level of relationship you're going to have with a client. What do we think to that? Repeat what your question, please. What do you think to the statement? In short, the more mature the sales process definition, the higher the general level of customer relationship. I think it's very broad generalisation. I don't think necessarily... Mark's shaking his head. <laughs> Absolutely. I, yeah. It's a too, too, broad. too, too general. Yeah, I, did yeah. Th- I, I, was n- I was nervous about that. I, I kind of get it. What he's saying is, if you've got a great sales process, you'll, you'll move up the food chain in the organisations and... He's saying, you know, if you've got a more mature process, you can become a trusted partner. But, but I, I struggled to swallow that. Um, and he said, some observers of sales methodology argue that since Buyer 2.0, and as I keep saying throughout the course of this book, I think we're into Buyer 3.0 since this book was written. Since uh, Buyer 2.0 engages with sellers later in their buying process, the value of a defined sales process is now greatly diminished. What do you reckon? Uh, do you know, I think what's interesting is, because I know you pretty well, I think we have read this chapter and, and got a different meaning from it. Yeah. Go on. I, I think what this chapter is about is about understanding where the individual or where the organisation is in their buying process and then attaching and using the right uh, part of their process. And I think what they're saying is is find out where your client is in a process and then apply the right strategy to it. Whereas well, I think he's talking about having a process. Yes. What do you reckon? You you have a process, but I think what they're talking about is sometimes you'll get in because the um, the organisations these days are coming later into allowing the salespeople later into the cycle. Um, perhaps you don't necessarily need to do the early part of the process. That's what I took out of it. Uh, but we, used to, we had a process um, that defined a whole series of questions that you need to go through um, this process and if you uh, come late into the sales cycle you still need to do the groundwork you still need to go back in the process mm. I'm saying do you read it like that that he's saying well, he's, he talks later on in the chapter about having a sales playbook yes he does yeah, about, yeah. which you know, I and, gr- and he, completely agree with and so what he's referring to is the playbook the process so he's saying the more mature your process and the more mature your playbook and the more defined your playbook and the more well thought through your playbook the higher the level of relationship you're going to get now, I think that's a little bit antithetic because we deal with so many guys that are in enterprise-level software sales guys. They all think that they're unique snowflake genius-free spirits. <laughs> they do. They do. They all think they're unique snowflake genius-free spirits. You bring them into an environment and say, yeah, listen, uh, here's your 100K basic salary. There's your 10 grand car allowance. There's your eight grand's worth of benefits before we've even kicked off. There's your 30 grand's worth of guarantees. Now, listen, you've got to follow this process. I completely agree, yeah. I get you. I get your the irony in that point, and I think that in particularly in the current job market, I think we're in an interesting place. And I'll we'll, and I can't wait to talk to Timothy next week about this. I think that one of the challenges is yes, there's a level in enterprise selling where the more mature you process, the higher the level of relationship. But then there's a level above that where actually you're never going to be able to drive process. Or there's always going to be an ego barrier to driving process with a certain type of salesperson. But what I'm not clear on is when you talk about maturity of a process. Um, I mean, in my experience, the process has to change uh, annually, maybe less than that. So when you say talking about maturity of a process, what do you see? Absolutely. What do you I mean by that? That's a really good point, Mark. In reality, is surely the best process is the one that evolves on a consistent basis. Absolutely. It should be amorphous. Absolutely. Uh, and, and rigidity of process should be the absolute... But that's anathem. my point about this chapter. It says establishing a dynamic sales process. Dynamism, one that changes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Exactly. And then you've got this really cool diagram for, for those of you who are listening... For those, those of you watching for those, in black and white. <laughs> for those of you watching in black and white, the pink is the one behind the black. Um, I love this, actually, by the way. Yeah, I knew you'd like this. I and mean, what you've got is, uh, I'll tell you what I know, the bit I know you like. Bias state. Latent admittant vision evaluation. Or more simply put, not looking, looking. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. I knew you'd like that. And, and, then, it, and then it applies their different states to it. Uh, yeah, and he's got, you know, as an example of, of a dynamic sales process, 
stale stage plan create qualify develop proof close latent by process really like that uh, that's very usable i think that's the most usable thing i've seen in the book but do you think a company could just pick that up and start to adopt it like that no i don't i don't think a person could no what what, what i got you know. a lot of during the book and as i sat there last night getting my reading up to date was the conclusion that this is actually a fascinating text i've really enjoyed it but if i was to really implement it and apply it i think it's one of those books that we've read on the show that is a taster for buying the training yeah exactly and that's what i feel this last chapter is really about they're positioning themselves aren't they yeah it's not quite a provided manual that you could pick up and roll with yourself yeah because there's too many gaps you've got to fill in, isn't there? Well, what I found that worked um, in Oracle um, is that if you have checklists, that's really made a big difference. Yes. Now, I don't know if you're all familiar with um, or th- there's a fantastic TED talk that talks about the value of checklists in the uh, surgical and he's environment. He's written a book, that guy, yeah. about ah, oh, Indian fella. Correct. Yeah. Now, he talks about just, uh, it's not trying to, in fact, the great thing is he uses surgeons because um, most people, most salespeople think, um, oh, I don't need a checklist. I'm a professional salesperson. I don't need a, mm-hmm. a step-by-step process. But the fact he's using surgeons, highly educated, extremely professional people, mm-hmm. and he's saying these, this identifies the things that commonly go wrong. And you're not trying to tell people how to do their jobs. You're setting out a list of things that if you follow them carefully, will make sure you don't make those mistakes yeah. that commonly are made. And I think what this is great, and I th- hopefully I enthused as, uh, about this at the beginning, about how I recognise all these things, but it's actually turning this into a process that works in a real environment. Yes, absolutely. Because even if you were coached, and even if the salespeople were coached to follow this process, how easy is it to do it? And what we used to do was come up with a series of questions for every stage in the cycle. And I'd be called in, I might have 200 different negotiations on the go that I'm monitoring. Mm. And I, if somebody said to me, can you come and help in this engagement? I would send them a list of 50 questions and say, how many of these can you answer? That's a good idea. What, yeah. Before you'd end up sat. Before, yeah. before you'd get involved. Some of the times you wouldn't hear from anybody again because they followed the process and it worked. Sometimes they would come back. And um, I think that is the most effective way to turn some of these things I- into real action. Okay. Tell you what's interesting is he's talking a lot about playbooks. Yeah. And I, I've noticed recently that there is a real trend. Maybe it's because we've been investigating automation and marketing automation and sales automation technology a little bit. Um, but there's a massive trend to talk about using sales playbooks. I think in many respects, I've, uh, throughout the course of this book, I've been a bit like, oh, you're a bit behind the behind the times. That's actually well ahead of its time. That concept of playbooks. It's ahead of its time. Yeah, it is a little bit there. It's got. It's got, it's, got, it's it was in, then gone out, and it's come back into fashion. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I agree. You know, IBM was a playbook, wasn't it? That's yeah. how they built a business model. Yeah, absolutely. And then they went out of fashion because yeah. we're all a bit too left for that. And now we're. It's true, though, isn't it? And now we're going back into it. But if you're cascading a process or you're cascading a, a sales value proposition, you have to have it documented. Yeah, um, you do. And particularly, you know, there's, That's there's, best there's practice, so isn't it? there's so much talk nowadays of blitz scaling companies. Yeah. And a big focus of these blitz-scaling companies is having high-energy high SDR environments yeah. that are very, very highly automated around specific playbooks in order to get appointments, yeah. Yeah. then pass it on. You know, the, the VCs, what, what, what VCs want to see is playbook that gets appointments, playbook that takes appointments to close. Yeah. Yeah. And they want to be, and so that they can then say, well, the playbook works, therefore we can scale, therefore you can have more money. Yeah. Um, and so I think we're seeing a, an economically driven sales environment where actually organisations, a lot of companies are being forced into being a little bit more focused on having a playbook because of the nature of the economics surrounding that. Yep, agreed. Yeah, I, I, I do agree, yeah. Now I'm on chapter eight here. Do you have anything else to say about chapter seven? No. Nope. Now, I'll tell you what I thought about Chapter 8, right? I liked a lot of it. There's one thing that fundamentally I completely disagree with. Go ahead. He did, so this, this chapter is called Coaching the Collaborative Sale. And I do not think that a sales manager should provide motivation. I just think that is absolute and utter nonsense. Does he say nonsense. that? Yes. Yep. 
Well, I just think absolute nonsense. But I think if you're doing a good coaching job, that in itself is motivating. Is that not not a fact? And don't you don't think know. people have yes, ebbs an, and flows? There's an energy in a good coaching conversation, yeah. isn't it? Well, he talks about intrinsic and extrinsic motivations. Correct, yeah. Doesn't he? He does, yeah. And I actually wrote somewhere, I remember last night, thinking Mike will have something to say about this. Yeah, I mean, we'll go into that because I've taken just loads of notes in it. And then I thought to myself, I'm ranting. Because you and I talk a lot about this and, and this is a big issue for us as recruiters. It's a massive issue for me when I'm interviewing a candidate on one, on behalf of one of So I interviewed a guy today uh, and I got just got talking to him and, he, and he's never normally at home as much as he is. I said, why are you at home so much? He said, well, my wife's due to give birth today. Right. He said, she hasn't given birth today. Congratulations so we're, sort of, we're sort of sitting around waiting kind of thing. And I said, why are you looking for a new job? But he said, because my wife's due to give birth today. I said, go on. And, and he told me what I'd been earning and all the rest of it. And they said, I don't want to go back to work for a while. He said, so right. I want to cover that income. So that's a deeply intrinsic... That guy, in my book, has got motivation. Yeah. Yeah. He's got motivation. Now, actually, if two years... So he's 28, this guy. If two years prior, when he was 26, his manager had tried to motivate him, his manager's pushing water up a hill. His manager doesn't need to motivate him now, does it? Because he's got his own motivation. Well, we've level. been there, haven't we? Yeah. And I just think the, the concept that he introduces, and, he, and I mean, I'm probably unfairly summarising a little bit to suit myself here in the argument, but he's sort of talking about the fact that managers should provide motivation. And yes, Mark, I agree with you. A good coaching session provides motivation. Yep. Don't provide as much motivation as your wife been present. <laughs> How many times have we been there with some guy that's 25 who's earned 1,500 quid bonus last month? Uh, and he's off, he's off on Monday. Because he's because he's, he's a weekend millionaire. He's a weekend millionaire. Weekend millionaire. He doesn't need to come to work on Monday actually. He, he doesn't need sack it off. because of that fifteen hundred pounds. He's got no car loan, uh, three hundred quid a month rent as a, in a shared house. Exactly. Uh, no debt, nothing, and actually he's an X amount last month. He's been out. He's partied all weekend. We're sat there trying to get him fired up and motivated, and he's like, "Oh, you must have seen it." Mark. I can, I can make my fifteen hundred right. quid the, go all the way into next month. In the environments you've been in. You know, who are the people that try the hardest and and try means just working hard, but also means improve themselves? It is those who are motivated, I think. I think, Absolutely. There's, a, I think there's a motivational sweet spot, though. Go on, you were going to say something. I was just going to say, but um, do you not think, though, there are people that you come across that are motivated to be successful because that's in their DNA? Yeah, of course, yeah. Um, okay, got, the, they've just are, got winning DNA, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. They're, they're, they're just... It, they're, you know, why we went through a period where a lot of our recruits had done sports science at uni. Yeah, yeah. Why? Because they were athletes and we wanted people who were competitive because yeah. winning was in their DNA. Yeah, mm, yeah. Absolutely. But people have ups and downs and a, a good coach will help people. And that, my description of a good coach is people who take away others' excuses for failing. And um, Yes, I would agree with that. Because everybody's got an excuse why they're not going to be successful at that time. And a good manager, they will work with you. And if they've taken away every, some things are real. Yeah. But if you can prove that if you if they are real and they're fixable, fix them. Yeah. And you're adding and you're supporting your employee or your or, or the person you're coaching. Anyway, I, go on. Uh, and then I was just going to say, once people have no excuses, all that's left is themselves. People will be motivated to do a good job. There's no excuse at the end of it. I wasn't getting I'd the right like support. I think they would, Mark. Yeah, I mean, there there are other parts to this chapter, by the way. (laughs) So so the first bit he's talking about is sales management cadence. And he's got a nice sales management sort of model here, figure 8.1. And I think that... But it's got arrows and lines in it, so you'll have liked it. I love it, yeah, absolutely. I could could have been a robot. I'm going to be like the first cyborg in recruitment. Um, but 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 I like a good model. And I think this model he's talking about in terms of analysing pipeline, analyse the opportunity, analyse the skill issue, that's where he's inspecting, then he's coaching the, the skill issue, he's coaching the opportunity, he's following it up, and he's going round and round in a circle. I think that is a good model for coaching somebody using this sales methodology. I, I prefer Keith Rosen's methodology. Yeah, but Keith Rosen's written a whole book on sales management. Yeah, this guy's sales leadership uh, and coaching. He, in reality, he's written two books on coaching. Yeah, this guy's written one chapter. Go on, Mark, you've got some notes underneath it. Well, I can see them. Well... No, I was, um, in fact, not related to this, but um, 
just it was about learning from engagements. No, it wasn't relevant to that particular one. So no, I didn't. Uh, have no. Any, I, I agree with that. It's standard, isn't it? It's it's what you expect. I would think. This is what uh, I've experienced anyway. If it's what you've, I don't think. I think it's un. I think you're being overly kind to the rest of the market to say that that is standard. Say so now, I've got plenty. I know plenty of people who are managed by. What's your number? That's the management. What's your number? Well, yeah. Where where are you to target? Well, I'm here. Or you need to get to target. Right. Thanks. Bye. Well, what do I do to get but, to target? Well, you just need to get there. There's plenty of that goes on. Oh, so loads of it. Loads of it goes on. But I'll tell you what I did like was the way he's aligned. So this part here on page 146, he's aligned. So he's put here, for example, if opportunities in the pipeline are stalling in the middle stages of a sales process, then the seller is probably not executing the visualised persona effectively. I like this. And I liked how he's aligned the different stages with the different issues. I agree completely. I thought that was really neat. And, and I, I got that. I thought, right, I really like that. And I also like this bit here. I thought you'd like this graph. It's a, it's, you, you get a couple of anachronisms here. G, specific gaps identified between parts. I like this model. <laughs> <laughs> the graph coaching model. Yeah. Um, possible reasons for identifying gaps. A, actions. F, follow-up. I like that. Can I just go back to this? Because I just realised yeah. that I did actually make a note underneath. Yeah, yeah. It says conduct weekly inspection of seller performance. Now, when I was at Xerox, this is the way they used to coach you. Mm. You'd go in in the morning and you'd explain where your appointments were that morning. And you would, and you would explain what you expected out of that, in that meeting. And the sales manager would say, what are you going to do if he or she says this? What are you going to do if he says that? And you'd go through your strategy or your tactics for every meeting that morning. You'd go back at lunchtime because it was a city centre patch. You'd be walking back into the office. You'd explain how it had gone. And then you'd do the same for the afternoon and your meetings that you had then. So it was extremely rigorous. No excuse is where it's come from for me. You'd go back. This went wrong. Didn't we discuss that? Didn't we explain what you were going to do? You're left with no excuse. I like that. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I I always like people who were Xerox trained, actually. Not that I understood much about how they were trained. I was felt that they were well trained. Well, well, one quick point on that is that uh, Xerox, the spin course I first went on, which was the very first one they ever delivered, mm. it was all about closing. And then when I joined Oracle, mm. a number of years later, they were using spin then. And then it was all, n- closing was one of the worst things you could do okay. about building relationships. <laughs> as soon as you start to close people, you're breaking down the relationship with them. Potentially. At some point you go ask them though, Mark. Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, but it's just the way you ask them, isn't it? Yeah, it is, yeah. And I always think if you're going to close somebody, the best time to close them is at the beginning of the relationship. How do you like to we, do business? We, we, could, we could spend an hour on this. That's, yeah, that's yeah, a Pandora's box. Yeah, 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 fair enough. Absolutely. But, uh, you know. And then uh, he's got this other thing here, the components of his formula, P times P times V I, times I V times C times C times C times C. Loved that. I really liked it. Could have been a massive chapter, that. I absolutely love that. I re- that that for me, we're really getting into actually a really good coaching conversation, then, aren't we? Because we we've got specific things to ask people. And P- then spot on the pain. next page. When we conducted opportunity reviews with our clients, we were often surprised by how often sellers ignore aspects of this formula. And I put, I'm not surprised. No, I'm not either. Are you familiar with something called Infomentis, Revergy, that type of thing? It refers no. these guys no, refer no, no. to it. You never heard of it? No. no. Basically, when you like you're presenting, you you're coaching with a um, with a salesperson, or you're discussing your strategy with a client. I've got it here. It's perhaps to show you, but you can't really see it here. But what you would do is you would map out. I like the look the of that. Ho- I mean, it sounds looks complicated, but that is one document. If you go to a client and you set out uh, what you've found through your discovery, you would go to a customer, and for the first time ever, they would see all their business problems on one page. Right. right, I like that. So there's your goal. And I, this is the one for how to compete against SAP. This is my internal presentation to the Oracle management about how we should take on SAP. Mm. But there's your goal. And then at the bottom, you can't see this, uh, the well, tactical page. Mark's got a massive page full of boxes, basically, that looks like it's a, a, a flowchart, essentially. It's, yeah, and it's a, a simple, well, I say a simple flowchart, perhaps doesn't look like it from where you're sat. But basically, you go around and through your discovery with a client, you're identifying all the tactical pains. Right. What are the consequences of those tactical pains? And those, the green there is that those are your key business requirements that deliver the goal. But you make sure that every action you take, you can justify it based on the tactical pains and the consequences of those. It's a little light spin. Yeah. What's the situation? 
what's the problem, what's the implications of those problems. And it rolls out to that. Now, when you go along to a client and you present their business problem on a single page, I would say 95% of the time they'd never seen it like that. That looks really smart. And it brings that clarity into the conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. So when you're talking about coaching, you're talking about doing all these different things here. You can. The reason I've got no other notes to add, because this is a great process, mm. but you can apply it. Have you done these things? That's Have the you identified trip, these though, things? The checklist again, yeah. But what you're doing here is, as we said with a book, how do you actually apply those strategies and tactics in a real-world environment? What I've tried to do here is show how you can put things in a simplified format and you can explain when you go and see and a you client. you can bring it right down to a bare bones. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And then, again, I've got later on, I've got, I could show you 50 questions. Every time you engage in any organisation or situation, the coaching where they've got this here, 50 questions. Step through those Which 50 questions. Have you a playbook? Yeah. And to know, well, if I haven't asked that question, if I don't know the answer to it, I'm probably not in as good a place as I thought I was going to be. Absolutely. Yeah. And actually, sometimes coaching is that simple. Absolutely. Well, the next part That's coaching. the game plan. Have you done that? No, I haven't. Yeah. It's no surprise you're struggling. Yeah. That's the, what Keith Rosen would say, though. No, Keith would have a completely diametrically different view of that. Yes, it would. So the next bit, he talks about the difference between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. Which we've sort of talked about a little bit. I mean, I'll read it very quickly. So what wins, Mike? Intrinsic motivators or extrinsic motivators? We've met a lot of salesmen over the years, and we've met some who are intrinsically motivated and some who are extrinsically motivated. Who wins? In my opinion, it's intrinsic. Your face doesn't say it does. <laughs> Tell me more about what you mean. Tell me more about what you mean. All right. So I'm going to give, I'll give some examples here, right? Open to the floor. You've got Salesman X. He's played sport his whole, let's just do two scenarios. Okay. He's sporty. He's competitive. He's quite a charismatic, likable lad. He was born to sell, really. Uh, And he's the son of two salespeople. Um, and he goes into sales and he's just a competitive guy. He plays to win. He just likes winning. Versus salesman Z, who has got a massive mortgage, two divorces under his belt, <laughs> um, a gambling addiction. Let's throw that in there. Um, and a mistress. And a mistress. A missus somewhere in a flat. All that stuff, right? He's got to earn money. And the and he takes a job working for Company X where they say, listen, mad accelerators here, mate. Proper ridiculous accelerators. Which one's going to be the most fired up? I'm going for your sportsman. See, I'd go for the second guy. No, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> I've seen so many people in that position. How long are they going to last? They're, yeah, well, not, they're not, Mark. But the companies don't care. Well, because there's plenty more where I mean, the real answer is not a right answer, it's a matter of opinion. Okay. And as, the, and, 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 as, and as Rutger Hauer says in uh, Blade Runner, the fire that burns twice as bright burns half as long. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, but when we're selling, when we're selling, in, um, say, you're analysing where you are in the situation, we'd look at who the salesperson was you're competing against. If you look at their LinkedIn profile and you can see they've moved every 12, 24 months, you start to introduce those issues into the campaign, sowing some seed of doubt uh, in the client's mind. Is this person maybe a tremendous salesperson? Is he going to be around to see this project through? Well, that's well, a high, highly likely not. But, How, well, they're buying the individual. The, of the solution, though, Mr. Client. Either a solution meets your needs or it doesn't. It's the, the company way- will still be here. He's positioned it. He's yeah, the person. They're buying think, that person as much as they're buying the I'll solution. What I think actually happens. I think people go from, because Jonathan's first example was an, was an extrinsically motivated person. His second example was an intrinsically motivated person. And I think people move from extrinsic to intrinsic motivation is what I think happens. When I first joined Howard Jackson, my basic salary was twelve thousand pounds in okay. two thousand. I, I negotiated that well, didn't I? Yeah, yeah. And the commission, <laughs> I, can't, I can't know what the commission was, but it was poor. And actually, um, I, I only I only turned up because I liked winning, really. Or, or conversely, I didn't like giving in. Yeah. I didn't, you know, the money bothered me. But then 
Over the passage of time, you know, you get married, buy a house, all the rest of it, and that extrinsic motivation moves itself into intrinsic motivation, is what I think happens. In yes, okay. Okay. and maybe people fluctuate intrinsically and extrinsically with their motivation well, as salespeople career, isn't it? Because actually what's life. self-actualization? Self-actualization is an extrinsic motivation cycle. It's not an intrinsic motivation. No, self-actualization is deeply intrinsic. You reckon I think yeah. it's extrinsic? Because I think you've got past the point of intrinsicness. <laughs> wow, this is heavy. Well, I, I mean, I find it amazing, you know, how, how many times do you and I, Mike, meet people who actually, you look at their careers and you think, that they'll come in and they see us and they say, oh, I work for this company and, and Dave and Bill, the owners, were just such great guys and they let me do my own thing and... They gave me, you know, I always felt like I was in control of my territory and they treated me right mm. and I loved working there and the business grew and grew and grew whilst I was there and it was fantastic. And and you look at the CV and you think, how long have you worked there? And the fellow goes, oh, I've worked there for 15 years. And, and you look at his P60s and you think, oh, crikey, he's not earned that much. But actually, the the what you, what the book is saying here... The, the, need, the seller's need for intrinsic motivation, including competence, relatedness and autonomy, they hold on to those people because they give them the competence, the yep. relatedness, the autonomy to do their work. It's a very and, good point. And you often meet these guys and they're a bit like, well, oh, I just want to sort of do the whole thing again, really, because they've loved the work, they've been as fired up as hell, and they've actually traded that for a lot of money. Right, and how does that, for if you guys, for example, we how, see, how are you motivated? How are you motivated? Me? Yeah. Uh, school fees, mortgage. Um, so I, I guess a, a significant element of my motivation is extrinsic, but there's a lot of it that's intrinsic. I'm very motivated personally by the success of the business itself. Yeah. But you're a blend of both, aren't yes. you? Yes, and I think, I think people in general are... Mm. As you mature, as you mature and you yeah. take on new responsibilities, you're bound to go down that direction. I get that. Yeah, Mike and I are working on a project at the moment. It's really exciting, isn't it? Yes. yes. And actually, that excitement is very motivating. Yes, yeah. it is. Anyway, chapter nine, because uh, time is pressing on here. It, it, it waits for no man, Mike. Chapter nine is implementing the collaborative sale. Okay. And it's actually. Um, quite close to being the end of the chapter in the book, because then we get into our little story again. Um, what do you make of this? So what he's saying, he talks about right people, right process, right tools. Uh, based on this survey, in 2013, Aberdeen Group studied more than 300 global companies to learn about their deployments of sales performance improvement training. They discovered the best-performing companies not only provided training, but also supported organisational behaviour change in three areas, notably right people, right process, right tools. Um, I, th I think that's bang right. You know, How many times do we meet candidates where they walk in and they say, there's no process? Yes, yeah. I agree. But or they walk in and they say, yeah, I, I've been talking to one this morning, somebody I know very, very well, where I, I know that that particular individual works in, in a business that's a big business where the CRM system is about 150 years old um, and it's driving the poor lad mental in as much as he gets three calls a week asking to go over his pipeline because the CRM system doesn't work. Yeah, I get that. And he's like, what? But you'd be surprised, I think, even if you look at, I don't want to say too much, companies like Oracle, not necessarily Oracle, um, <laughs> They use their own system, yeah, but they don't necessarily implement it to its full capacity. The problem is the salespeople, though, isn't it? It is. It Let's is. get it right. Salespeople are terrible at filling in. But system. also, the company can be a part of the problem because if they're constantly going on the latest uh, new fad or theme or whatever, yeah. you can have multiple um, processes going on at any one time. Yeah. That's why you need some consistency. Um, uh -huh. I like this part. So I'm on page 161 now. And he says, so, so this is about implementing this strategy into your business, basically. Um, and he talks about certification of sales mastery. I think that's a great thing to have in a company. I, I think that people don't do that enough. Um, and, but then he goes on, learning is transformation. Organisations that treat training as an individually transformative experience enjoy a 10-20-70 philosophy. That is 10% in training programme. Uh, through formal instruction, 20% from observing and giving feedback to peers, and 70% is experienced through real, real world application. I think if somebody planned a new starter's diary around in that manner, using this methodology, that would be a very successful thing to happen. 
It would. How many companies do we see really have that kind of onboarding? Oh, then put it's idealistic. Yeah. <laughs> I bet it'd be a good thing to do. Uh, well, I can tell you what the companies that I know do do that sort of thing. Yeah. That happens, yeah, absolutely. What, in an enterprise organisation yeah, enter- like Oracle? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. They've got a centre now and people go through a multi-week induction well, course. Well, that's refreshingly and tra- good to hear, actually. You yeah. surprised me you said that, Keith. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Do they not process the people in those in those inductions? I mean, they can't win, can they? If they don't provide an onboarding, then they're going to get panned on glass door. Yeah. If they do provide an onboarding, they're going to get panned on glass door because of... 50% of the salespeople are going to go, oh, God, I'd gone some stupid induction. Yeah, but it's got... No, I think um, they're trying to recruit people who um, are committed and are professional people, uh, or aspire to be professional people. Um, and I think that type of training is often what attracts some of the candidates to the company. Okay. Fair I like okay. the sound of that. Yeah. Uh, go on then, Jonathan. Uh, he makes point here. He says, training for developing necessary situational fluency for execution of the three sales personae and for use of enabling technologies, job aids and tools can be constructed into a focused curriculum by role. I, I made my note here was, here's the problem. If I'm paying a £100,000 base, I expect the person to fit and to solve the problem, and I don't expect to train and develop can't, people. Can't be right for doing wrong, though, can they? Because I do agree with you. 100k, I want an out-of-the-box solution that works. But I, want an I don't want a customised-off-the-shelf solution. And then I want you to do it how I want you to do it. So it's very tough, that, isn't it? I yeah. spoke to a guy today, actually... On a big basic, it was on a 250 basic. Right. And I mean, that's a big basic. It's good right? package, yeah. Oh, mad, yeah. A very nice man, clearly, because obviously the better guys always are. And um, we were talking about it, and he worked for a very, very big company, and he'd spent his life working for very, very big companies. And I harked back to this chapter thinking, if I paid somebody a quarter of a million pound basic, I just want, I just want a result. I'm buying yeah, I a don't, result. I'm, I'm not paying, I don't expect... I don't expect to be sat in the meeting with my boss saying, oh, don't worry, when we've trained him, he'll be all right. Yeah, exactly. But he's joined such big companies that he would have had to swallow their playbook. But he's going to come also with a network. He's going to be able to open doors. There's all sorts of other things yeah, yeah. that he's going to be bought correct. for. What other val- correct. What 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 else am I paying the quarter of a million pound for? Absolutely. Am I paying for the fact that he's got a relationship with CEO X and CEO Y? No. You can open, make a yeah. phone call. What no. a huge difference that makes. Now, we did yeah. have a little bit on recruitment, actually. Page we did. 162 and we page did. 165. He, he spent a good solid third of a page on recruitment on the page 165, but I'm glad he mentioned I, I it. Quite, I, Mike, I think you've been unfair here, mate. I, I actually quite liked his... Uh, uh, as you know, listeners, I have finished writing a book on recruitment. Uh, <laughs> and actually, I quite liked the way he split this oh, little grid like here that, on yeah. micro-marketer, visualiser, value driver. It's not dissimilar to a concept in always be hiring your problem is i don't know many sales directors or mds that are going to have enough experience to ask questions to, no. to uncover the answers to and i think questions. that actually 90 percent of the clients i engage with would mark if you said to them okay situational situational knowledge as a micro marketeer what level do you need somebody at oh, i need an expert <laughs> uh, capability knowledge <laughs> you know where I'm going with this yeah, 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 yeah. it would be at the top of the scale the job spec would be at the top of the scale what are you paying yeah. 45k <laughs> right yeah absolutely but again so, not, and you can quite understand why they're doing this but this is a way to it is. sell you know something what? to get it's a good start if a client yeah. came to me with that I'd think yeah. right I think right me and you can work I can work with you it might be that you could get into a little bit more neat scoring and thinking about benchmarking. But do you know what? If that was the only thing a client... If, if a client came to me with that and said, listen, I've tried to create a job description for you, Johnny, um, and I've based it on collaborative sale, on the levels that I need across micro-marketing, visualisation and value driver... They'd be a streets out of anybody else, wouldn't they? They'd nail... They'd, they'd, just, they'd, they'd get their recruitment much more right than other clients. Although not following this exact process i think you would be surprised that i don't know whether you do anything with oracle but um, they're a closed door from the recruitment front okay we'll tell you we'll tell you the whole oracle story yeah some other time yeah yeah absolutely they would have that very tightly analyzed number score some of the people they recruit fair fair enough if you see some of the people they hire i mean they recruit some good ones but some of them crikey jesus (laughs) but you would know because you've worked there and i haven't yeah okay well, maybe, again, probably not relevant specifically to this, but we can talk later and I can just explain Yeah, the thing that I, I thought here was, and I, I do think it was a really nice model list, and I'm going to talk to Timothy about this next week, 
is I think it, it doesn't quite account for what I put in inverted commas as the market and the relationship between the, an organization's employer value proposition and the talent that's out there. I do agree with that, but at some point you've got to start. I mean, I mean this is coming from the stance of, yeah. I'm the best company on earth and I've got an unlimited that, cash therefore, portfolio. This is, therefore, therefore this is what I want. Yeah, 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 but I mean, actually, how many companies have 250k basic? Not many, really. Okay. Um, and then he talks about assessing sales candidates. Too often a company's hiring process relies heavily on subjective information with no objective data. I mean, obviously he's right. Yes. 100%. Yeah. Um... What about tools? Focused enablement. Uh, I didn't take many notes on this really. I didn't really like it. What, as I a concept? I sort of didn't dislike it either. I didn't have any... I, I just put a note here. I haven't really got any opinion on this. <laughs> well, okay. Well, I, I haven't really because I thought you guys had covered this because I didn't recruit that many salespeople. I was working with the guys. So this is your patch really. Yeah. So what he's talking about here is he's saying the right tools can help sellers to execute the collaborative sale more effectively. More importantly, they can also help sellers to differentiate themselves with buyers. For example, collaborative interaction with buyer 2.0 can be encouraged and facilitated by providing a secure online site reserved for that particular buyer organisation. This site may be a secure wiki, a Microsoft SharePoint page, a dedicated customer portal, or similar technology, all designed to encourage transparency and sharing of relevant info between sellers and buyers. I used to see a lot of that, but I don't think that's uh, relevant these days. Dated, yeah. Well, what's interesting is, that, uh, you know, it's not their fault though. It's just the tech market moves so fast. Yeah. But do you know what the the predominant tool that people still use is? Email. For yes. Collab for, for collaboration. Cla for collaboration. Yeah. Uh, I would say, particularly inter-organisational collaboration, I, I think that you'll find email is still extremely widely used. I would agree with that. I had a client that I I, I shared a Slack channel with last year. It worked. <laughs> Didn't it was shit. Well, what about just on that? We, I, we used to have a web chat and social collaboration tool where I would um, manage that all the time. So basically everybody on engagement against SAP would post their latest challenge, their latest issue. And then wherever I was, I could interact with that and I could give them answers, put them onto the right people. And that is an extremely valuable tool, no question. That's, yeah, those kind of Internal. things. Internal. The, and, and absolutely. And there's a reason why Salesforce, Oracle yeah. have all invested in that collaborative technology. Yeah. What I don't think, and you know, we we tried pushing out, for example, Salesforce Chatter to some of our clients. Okay. We tried pretty hard with that for a while, didn't we? Many years ago, clients just can't be asked. No, Fr frankly, yeah, yours, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, they can't be yeah. asked. Yeah. They're like, oh god, more bloody logins, another password that I need to remember because I can't be. Bothered. Sounds like you're describing me, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and then providing knowledge in context aligned with process. Well, I like so, this. That, CR, CRM systems can be repositories for dynamic sales process playbooks that describe effective seller practice. This is very visionary from him. This is a, you know, if you look at where a lot of the sales technology and marketing technology landscape is going, a lot of this is about creating those workflow automated processes. I thought that was, he was ahead of the curve a little bit there. I've just, um, Something along that. What we used to do was every time anybody put a new opportunity against any of the uh, competitors we had, we would push out to them through the CRM tool the latest competitive intelligence. So if they're at any particular stage in the sales cycle, we would automatically push out the latest competitive intelligence to that individual. That's so th yeah, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. That is, that's really cool, that, based, based on trigger points. But it's back, yeah, it's back to, as they moved up the cycle, right. through the cycle, really they would cool. get pushed the uh, the latest information. Okay, cool. And then leveraging sales intelligence and social media. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's not the fault of these guys, it's just a bit... Well, you know, last week we talked a little bit about that, didn't we? It's, so, it's, just, a bit, things, it's just a bit two years old. Yeah, yeah. One of the, Mike and I have both we're both pretty fervent that there is often a direct correlation between a salesman that spends a lot of time on LinkedIn doing social media and in inverted commas and the frequency with which they then therefore need to look for a job. Sure. Um, and what we find is I, I think that there's been um, a miss sale and, you know, LinkedIn, they're a very, 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 very powerful organisation owned by a very, very, very powerful organisation. Mm -hmm. And I think they've done a lot to sell to the user base 
that they should be on there socially selling. Yeah. And actually, don't get me wrong, social selling... That That's what is, we're doing right now. We're doing it right now, yeah. and it works for us, and we're content marketing, and we are social selling. But I think that there is a misunderstanding of what social selling is amongst a lot of people, and it's very easy to get lost in it. And before you know it, you'd have been better off getting the books off company's house, analysing the company, and making a cold call. In, in reality. But you need a blended approach. Yeah, you do. You need a blended approach yeah, for that, that um, question. And, you know, he's talking about, for example, uh, and we were talking just before we started, he was talking about exploring big data opportunities. Some of the kit that's available now. Yeah, you mentioned. We, Mark and I were just talking about it in terms of being able to... The, I got pushed out a tool the other day that was obviously my Facebook feed. How the hell do they know that? I mean, that's a whole other conversation. How do they know that I'm sort of in the market for that kind of stuff? It's a, it's an AI tool that helps you find companies similar to those which you've already engaged really successfully with. That's smart, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. But and it's, and, and it's basically it, this tool. Uh, uh, so what it does is if, for example, you've sold to Company X, it'll say, yep, you sold to Company X. That's because you've sold to them because of that. And here's another 50 companies that are bang like it. Well, that's a key thing we used to do. If you're looking to identify prospects, look at your existing clients, but build a perfect profile yeah. of your existing client and then look for people, organisations out there with the same characteristics. Yeah. Because reference selling is absolutely key. Absolutely. Oh, you're absolutely right. And absolutely. what you want to do is find the people that look like your existing customers. And I'm pleased to see that John nailed his deal at the end of the book. Obviously. <laughs> How Good old John. Good old John. Now, I'll tell you what, I, I don't know whether you guys have done this or not. But actually, one of the best parts of the book is the appendix. You know, I didn't bother with it, to be honest. Well, actually, I'd like to point out it is one of the best parts of the book. Fair enough, I might go back and read it. One, it it summarises a lot of stuff. Two, it gives you everything back into some really key lists. For example, key competencies for micro-marketer, key competencies for visualiser, key competencies for value driver. And then they they give a list of a load of other additional collaborative selling tools. So... uh, You've got here, and this is one of my favourite bits, um, like an assumed value estimate format, which I really liked. Um, so do read the appendix because there's loads of little forms and even template emails where where, where stuff gets much, much more practical. Um, but not that practical that you could do it without going on the course. Fair enough. And at that... That's the end of the book, but next week on the show, we have Timothy T. Sullivan, folks, joining us live from somewhere in the US of A via video call to answer our questions. If you've got any, let us know. Um, I'd like to say thank you for coming on the show. God, yeah, Mark. A pleasure. Richard, we've covered a, we've yes. covered about ten percent of what I wanted to say. Will you come again? You've been a good guest. Well, uh, yeah. If you're invited, love to. I must apologise for holding your key halfway through. So <laughs> I was reading his name and I thought I'm just too far in. <laughs> I'm going to change my name. See you next week, folks. <laughs>